This podcast is brought to you by The City Church in Mississauga, Ontario. For more information, please visit thecitychurch.ca. We hope you are encouraged by this message from our lead pastor, Frank Coulter. Good morning again. And just as they were singing about, we have been spending the last six weeks since we started the year just talking about this idea of surrender, yielding ourselves to the ways and the specific ways of God in our life and just talking about different practical ways we can have this idea of surrender outworking in our lives on a daily basis. So if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn over to Third John, the epistle of Third John. There's only one chapter there. And verse 2 says this, <clears throat> Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, we've been defining that word of soul. It means your feelings, your desires, and your affections. In other words, it's the center of who you are, your, your decision-making faculties, your affections, your love, that we would surrender that idea, the center of who we are. We would be yielding that to God. And then from that place, uh, things are going to go well in our lives if we have a good place in our souls. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is speaking here in verse 39. He says, if you cling to your life. Now that word there that's translated life is the same word in Third John that's translated soul. So that word, that same Greek word is translated different in different places, but it's the same meaning. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So if we just hold on to the center of our affections and our life and our decisions, we're sort of left to our own devices, whatever things that we can think of, whatever things we can imagine. But Jesus is saying if we surrender that, if we don't hold on to that, but we give it up to him, if we offer it to him, if we surrender it to him, we will actually discover life the way it was intended to be lived. And this is what we'd have to think about God, that God creates life so he knows how it should be lived. And this is the way we need to think about this idea of surrender. Once again, it's not a very popular idea in our culture. Nobody wants to surrender or yield or submit to anyone else that we have our own specific ideas about things. But we can't take that idea into our relationship with God. If God is God and we aren't, which we aren't, we should be surrendering our lives to him. And then once again, what we've been doing in this series is finding out very specific ways how to do that. We can just say the phrase, surrender your life to God. But what does that mean specifically? So we've been talking about very specific areas and then how we work that out practically in our lives. So the first week we actually talked about uh, the voice of God, surrendering to the voice of wisdom in our life. The second week we talked about worship, that everybody worships. But not everybody is worshiping God. And then as uh, an extension of that, week three, we talked about generosity. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, submitting to kingdom priorities as it relates to things that we can do for other people. And then last week, we talked about surrendering our words to God and how that affects our lives. So if you missed any of those messages, you can catch up uh, on our church website, through the podcast, and then through our church app, those are all available to you. So as we have been seeing and talking about in this series, Jesus is not asking for us, for those of us who say we are Christians, Christ followers, Jesus is not asking us for some low-grade commitment to him. He's like, give up your life for me. So it's not, you know, 20 or 30% or even 50% that Jesus is telling us to give up the totality of our lives to him, and then we will discover life. 
And as we've been talking about these things in this series, it's, it's so many things that affect so many different areas of our life. And what we're going to be finishing up today is talking about relationships. Um, that we should surrender the way we do relationships to God. Uh, in February, you know, we, we have Valentine's Day coming up this Wednesday, or as I like to call it, Forced Romance Day. And if it's forced romance, is it actually romance? You can talk about that at lunch. Um, but we talk about uh, relationships a little bit in the month of February. We celebrate Family Day. And when we think about relationships, relationships are uh, the place in which we will experience the highest highs of life and then also the lowest lows. The things that affect us in that huge, huge range of what it means to be human. So much of that happens in the context of relationships, uh, the, the highest joys that we will experience where we're like crying tears of joy. We're not doing that alone. It actually has something to do um, in relationship to others. Uh, in the lowest lows, the, the part where we not even physical damage that's done to us, but sometimes when our heart gets broken, when somebody says or does something to us that affects our emotions, that is part of the lowest lows that we could you know, ever imagine, I know uh, this week um, or last weekend, my daughter, at, she's at university and she's playing intramural ball hockey. So my whole life with two daughters, I've been trying to get people to play hockey with me or golf or anything, anything sports related. And it was pretty much, no, we're taking dance lessons. So um, last weekend, my daughter, who's now in ball hockey, she's playing ball hockey at university, she comes home and she says, dad... I need you to show me some things about hockey. (laughs) It was a beautiful moment, people. I'm just telling you. 18 years in the making that she came home and she wanted me to teach her. Give me a second. About hockey. It was a beautiful moment. So I taught her a few things on the weekend and, and then she went back this week and she had a a game, a little bit too, she's a little bit competitive. I don't know how she got that way, but she's a little bit competitive. And so she wasn't the best person on the team and she's used to like excelling in things. And so she wasn't the best. And so she wanted me to show her some things. And then, so she went back, she had her game on Thursday night. She FaceTimes me and she scored a goal, people. (laughs) One week of lessons. And I said, you could have been great. I could have trained you. Not crying over spilt milk. I enjoyed the moment. I was so happy when she, as ball hockey, intramural, nobody cares. But I was excited. And this is the way relationships are. We experience this huge range of emotions in relationships. And we actually struggle a lot of times to uh, maintain a level of success. In our relationships, like I said, we go through these joyful moments, but then we also struggle and we experience most the most painful moments that we can think about. So we're going to talk about some ways where we can uh, this morning where we can surrender our relationships and how we do relationships, because we will always find ourselves in relationships. Now, as I mentioned, I mentioned this in first service and I want to mention this again, talking about the type of relationships that we are in. Nobody is asking you, and and specifically God is not asking you, to remain in an abusive relationship. So if you find yourself in an abusive relationship, uh, talk to somebody, get some help, and then get out of that relationship. 
Is everybody clear on that? So I'm not talking this morning about abusive relationships. I'm talking uh, this morning just about uh, the general level of dysfunction that we are all facing as humans interacting with each other. But I'm not talking about uh, maintaining some sort of extreme relationship when you are getting abused. Get some help and get out of that relationship. But in a relationships where, um, you know, good, solid um, even good, solid marriages with two well-adjusted people, educated and, and resourced and all these different things. We are going to struggle in relationships. The person, the people that have found your soulmate and you married them, you're still going to struggle in relationships. And God has a lot to say uh, for us in relationships. And then he models for us. As we see in the scripture, God models for us the way to do successful relationships. Now, there's a lot in the New Testament about relationships, and there's some um, very specific ideas in the New Testament. And, and over and over again, depending on the translation you look at, there's 59 different occurrences of things that we're supposed to do for one another. And one of them, obviously, is love one another. But here's some other things that we see described in the New Testament that we're supposed to do for each other, pray for each other, serve one another, encourage one another, accept one another, submit to one another, be patient with one another, to bear each other's burdens, to honor each other, to be devoted to one another, and to be at peace with one another. And all of these, in a sense, are expressions of love. Highest thing that we would see in the New Testament are our New Testament, our singular command in the New Testament to love God and to love people. And when we think about love, it has so many different meanings in so many different places. And sometimes we limit it to just an emotion or just a feeling, and it is that. But it is also something that we would see when we grow in love and we understand what love is. We realize that it isn't just that emotional thing. It is um, a decision that we are making to be a loving individual. I know um, this fall my wife and I will be celebrating 24 years of marriage. And I was thinking on the weekend about when we, when we got married, we did our pictures uh, before our ceremony. And some people say, well, that's bad luck. I don't believe in luck, so it's not a problem. Um, and so, but they let us have a little moment together privately before they started taking our pictures. So the little chapel we were getting married in, I was there at the front in my tuxedo, you know, just waiting for her. And she peeked around the door in the back and she looked so beautiful and awesome. And, you know, my heart started pounding and it was like a really good moment. And I know for sure in that moment, my wife thought this is the pinnacle of love. No, I thought it too. But I know for sure she thought it when she saw me in my tux waiting for her at the front, the chapel. And so we went along for about five years and about one week um, after we celebrated or a few days before our fifth anniversary, we discovered this whole other level of love that our first daughter was born. And, and I, heard, I heard a parent uh, describe it like this. Um, you know, when you, when you have your first child, it's like your heart is broken wide open and you're not even sure what to do with all of the emotions that you're feeling. And then we went along another uh, four years and our second daughter was born. And I remember my wife thinking about, you know, we have our oldest and 
And how are we going to, we love her so much. How are we going to love this new baby that's coming? But then the new baby comes and you find a way and you find this whole other gear of love. Now, I don't know if having grandchildren is like that. I'm, I'm happy to put that off a little while yet uh, to find out. But maybe grandparents would say, man, when, you, when your child has a child, you discover this whole other gear of love. But when we think about the love we would experience and know as humans, when we would think about the God kind of love, the God kind of love would transcend that. That we are finite beings. And so the, the love that we can experience and describe would, we, would be limited in a sense by our humanity. But think about the God kind of love. That God's love even goes beyond that. And this is the standard that God is calling us to in the context of interpersonal relationships. Because once again, man, we experience these high highs and these low lows. And sometimes the low lows happen because we're just really bad at relationships. We don't do them well. We don't surrender how we do relationships to God. Jesus gives us a little bit of hint here in Luke chapter 6. Why maybe our, our relationships are so hard. Luke chapter 6 verse 39. He says this. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And this is what Jesus has called us to be, disciples, learners, that we're supposed to learn from God how to do relationships. So this is what we're learning. This is um, the school that we are in, so to speak, for the rest of our lives as disciples of Jesus, that we're supposed to be fully trained. And then Jesus says this, verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And here is the difficulty as it relates to being in relationship with other dysfunctional humans because that's all you have to choose from some human that has a measure of dysfunction that they're dealing with from so many different places and here's what we would say about those those times and the struggles that we would have in relationship when we would tell a story about that struggle or that relationship problem what is the first thing generally speaking that we're going to describe what is wrong with the other person you go through something, let me tell you what they did, let me tell you what they said, let me tell you what they thought, let me tell you the outcome because of what they did. But what is Jesus telling us here in the context of these verses? Like, man, yes, they have a speck in their eye, but we have a two-by-four out of our own eye. And sometimes we, it's very easy for us to minimize our own struggles, the, our own things that we are going through, and, and focus just on what I might see on somebody else. And so a little bit what Jesus is telling us, hey, take the log out of your own eye. In other words, have a little bit of humility as it relates to dealing with somebody else because we can. We can help somebody when they might be going through a difficulty or they might struggle, be struggling with something. And then vice versa, someone else can help me. If I've got a speck in my eye, if I'm dealing with something, somebody else can actually comment on it and help me through that situation. 
But the struggle is when we pretend that we don't actually have issues. When we pretend that we're not actually facing something. And this, a lot of times, this is what happens in, in marriage conflict. We're so, it's so easy just to focus on our spouse. And, and what they're doing wrong and blah, blah, blah on this. But then the reality is the reality of every, of every marriage is that we both have two by fours in our eyes. We both have our own humanity that we're dealing with. But it is just so much easier, isn't it? It's just easier to think that the problem is the other person. It, it, I don't have to deal with anything then if I just think that speck is the biggest problem. No, so for us to be able to have a relationship with somebody else, the assumption then should be, hey, I'm working through some stuff also. That God is not finished with me yet. That I am not completely sanctified. Even though I've experienced God's salvation, sanctified means, you know, completely Christ-like. So when we have um, issues with somebody else, then we can, part of the assumption is, I don't have all of my stuff together yet. So humility in the conversation is so helpful. Here's something else that's very helpful in relationships. James chapter 1, verse 19. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Now, the old proverbial thing, you know, we have twice as many ears as we do a mouth, which means that we should listen twice as much as we speak. But does anyone else struggle with this? Sometimes don't we get this the opposite? I mean, we're talking way more than we're listening. And if you ever get into a struggle with somebody, um, you know, a dispute or something is going on, so many times we're actually not even listening to each other. We're just formulating our response. And I sort of hear what the issue is, but I know you're talking. I'm not exactly sure what you're saying, but I just need you to stop because I need to speak again. But unless we actually on purpose, intentionally try to listen to what somebody else is saying and really honestly trying to understand their point. Not take what they say and twist it and argue back on something they didn't actually say, but to slow down and, hey, what are we going to do? We're going to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I don't, I don't know about you. I get this reverse a lot. It's just easier for me to talk. It's just, I can talk. I talk a lot. And it's just easy to talk because you know what you're thinking. The struggle is to try to understand what someone else is thinking. And then if you're dealing with somebody with the opposite gender, that makes it even harder. Because you don't actually think necessarily like they're thinking. So you got to slow down and you got to listen so that you can understand. Because then when we understand each other, then it's so much easier to work through whatever we might be working through instead of just speaking and responding and speaking and responding. That we would be quick to listen and slow to speak. Colossians chapter 7, sorry, Colossians chapter 3. Let's turn over there. Some great relationship advice here in the book of Colossians. It says, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. So he's going to list some things that we maybe used to do. Or maybe on our bad days, we still do. But Paul was writing to the church at the Colossian church, and he's saying, hey, we need to put these things away. And what are these things? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then it says in verse 9, the first three words, do not lie. Now, none of those things that I just read will ever become virtues. 
None of these things are ever going to become good things. That we should put them away. It should be something intentional. That we aren't uh, an angry person full of wrath and malice and slander. That I'm just going to be speaking lies against someone. And then verse 9 says, don't lie. And then he says this phrase. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self or the better self. And you all know at different times you've done better in relationships, and then some days you've done really bad. We've given in to this anger and malice and slander, and maybe sometimes we found ourselves lying. And then where does that get us in relationships? It gets us nowhere good. So Paul is using this idea, uh, let's put off the old, let's put these things away. None of these, let's agree, which we do, generally speaking, none of these things work, let's not do them. Because they don't work well in relationships. Let's not lie to each other. Why is lying a bad idea? You know, I mean, the first thing is you're not really respecting the person that you're talking to. But the other, the other reason, when you start to lie, then you have to try to remember the lie that you told. And then when you go to talk, you're like, what did I say? I'm not sure what I said. You, you, and then you're trying to remember the lie that you told plus what's actually true. And then, what is the phrase? Be sure your lies will find you out. Why do your lies find you out? Because you can't remember. If you start lying, people get in a habit of lying, which is a bad habit to get into. And then you don't have to try to remember them. It's just easier and it's better to tell the truth. Can I get an amen? It's better just to tell the truth. Because then you don't have the pressure. It's not a good pressure to think of. You don't have to, i got to remember what I said here. And just, all you have to remember is what actually happened. And then you say that. We don't want to lie to each other. It's not good for relationships. Seeing that you have put off the old... So these are all the old version of us. The worse version of us. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So once again, back to this idea that how we're going to learn to do relationships is from God. I'm not going to just do this... All this old self stuff. This stuff that doesn't work. I'm going to look at God. Renewed in the image of the creator. So I'm going to look at God. And how does God do relationships? And then I'm going to surrender how I do relationships. To the way that the creator does relationships. The savior God. How is he doing relationships? And then I'm going to put those things into practice the companion verses of that in the book of Ephesians. Let's read those. Ephesians chapter 4. What I love about the book of Ephesians, it, it, it's, its structure is really amazing. It, it, the first part of it is talks about all of these spiritual truths. How we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The, you know, this very interesting, amazing talk about what's happened because of what Jesus has come. And then the second part of the book is like, now here's how we put it into practice. It isn't just this highfalutin talk. It actually has meaning in our lives that we are seated with Christ. Here's how you work it out. You work it out in relationships. You work it out in your family. You work it out in your marriage. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, And put on the new self. Do you know who your new self is? Do you know who your better self is? I would just say, if you stop and think about it and slow down, you know. 
Your old self is that, that list that we read. You're angry, you're lying, you're slandering. You've got malice in your heart. In other words, vengeance in your heart. That's, that's the old self. That's not how we want to live. We want to put on the new self. Created to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So what is going to give the enemy a foothold? If I'm just going to be angry all the time. Hey, I'm, going to, I'm going to feel anger, but we don't want to let that anger turn into sin. I don't want to feel that anger and then just go to bed night after night after night angry. Not talking about a situation, not working it out with the other person who has a speck and I have a two by four. I got to work it out with that person. I got to work it out with that person who we're both struggling in our humanity. I don't want to go to bed all of the time angry. And then what is, what is, what is Paul saying? If we do, we're just giving the enemy a foothold in our lives. Just angry all the time. Just sort of a low grade. It's there simmering under the surface. And if anybody just says the wrong thing or looks at you the wrong way or does something on the road the wrong way, it's just going to spring right up because it's right there under the surface. Now, let's put that away. That's our old self. We're supposed to be living after the image of God. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must no longer, must steal no longer. That's a good idea. Don't be a thief. But must work. Everybody should work. Inside of the house, outside of the house, everybody should be working. And when your children are old enough to push a vacuum or fold laundry or whatever, you should teach them to work. The teenagers love me right now. But everybody should be working. There should be nobody just not doing anything. We are actually created to work. So we're not going to be thieves. What are we going to do? We're going to work. Doing something useful with their own hands. That they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. That is the old man, the worst person. The worst version of myself is that list. Get rid of it. And then what does the next verse say? Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And here we get to it. How is it that God does relationships so well? That God in Christ forgives us. Now, if you are going to be in a marriage, a friendship, any type of relationship for more than two weeks, 
you are going to have to learn how to forgive people. Because people are going to say and do the wrong thing and the thing you don't like. And you, the thing you don't think that they should do. But here in this last thought, this last sentence, is the key to all successful human relationships. Doing relationships after the image of the creator. What is it? Let's read it again. Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How is it that we have a relationship with God? It's because Christ went to the cross, shed his blood. And then because of that act, God forgives us. He offers us forgiveness that we needed. We didn't do everything right. We don't say everything right. We sin. We miss the mark. And so the way we have a relationship with God is that God forgives us. The previous verse talked about bitterness. Bitterness and unforgiveness. See, in our lives, we are going to face times where the potential is there to, for us to just be unforgiving. That somebody does something to us that we would never imagine doing to anybody else. And it causes so much pain in my life and it just it hurts whether it's physically or emotionally. And then in those moments, we have a choice. We're either going to learn to forgive or we're going to hold it and we're going to become bitter individuals. See, when we become bitter, what happens to us is something has happened to us, but now we have chosen something after the fact, after the infraction, after the sin that happened to us. Bitterness and unforgiveness is something now I'm choosing. I'm choosing to hold on to something. But God gives us this tremendous key in his word that we, like he did for us, would learn to forgive. That we wouldn't hold on to bitterness. That we wouldn't hold on to that thing that happened to us. It wasn't right. It shouldn't have happened. But then we, we give it validation, we give it further life when we choose to be bitter, when we choose not to forgive. What we're doing is we're giving that person too much voice in our life and they didn't actually love you. They didn't actually care about you in that moment and then all we do is think about it and foster it and think about it and foster it and then we just become bitter based on what somebody else has done to me. But God, here, he's giving us this clue how to have a successful relationship. Now, when we think about a relationship sometime with somebody that has hurt us and damaged us, you know, Jesus talks about that we would pray for those that have hurt us and damaged, that have despitefully used us. And part of the reality is when we go through relationships like that, what we're doing is we're praying for somebody from a distance. Somebody that you don't trust, somebody that has done all of these things to you, that's what you need to do is not that you stay in a relationship where you're continuing to get hurt and damaged. You need space. Maybe sometimes it's a different country. But what are we doing? We're not going to hold it. We're going to pray for them. I don't have to get into pl- close proximity with somebody that I don't trust and has proven themselves unfaithful and untrustworthy. 
But when I hold that unforgiveness, I'm giving them too much power. When it becomes bitterness, I'm giving them too much power in my life. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to forgive. See, sometimes we, we struggle. It's like, well, if I forgive them, if I say the words, I'm, I forgive them, I'm actually letting it go. I'm, I'm sort of... Um, I'm sort of saying that it's, that it's okay that they did it. No, the opposite is true. The fact that they need forgiveness is you saying it was wrong. They need to be forgiven. And sometimes, here's the reality, people. They're not coming to say, I'm sorry. They're not coming back a lot of times to be like, hey, I apologize for the damage done. When I slandered you, I'm really sorry. Sometimes they don't come. Sometimes they're not coming to apologize. What are we going to do? We're going to hold on to that. We're going to become bitter. We're like, I'm not having any more friends because of this thing that happened to me. No, the key is forgiveness. The key is to let it go. And then sometimes when situations are really bad, you got to get up every day and say, I forgive them. Maybe you got to say it out loud in your bed. And if the only, the only prayer that you can pray for them, that you can muster, Lord, help them today in Jesus' name, amen. If that's all you got, that's better than holding vengeance in your heart, holding bitterness in your heart. And then it starts to come back up again, and you, and you hear yourself telling the story again about how they hurt you and what they did wrong. And then you end up holding yourself in the middle of that hurt and that pain. God doesn't want you to stay there. God wants you to move forward. He doesn't want you to be held in that place by somebody who doesn't actually love you. Because here's the reality. God does. And his love is infinite. His love goes beyond. Why would we give the direction of our life to someone who didn't actually care about us? This is why we need our identity from the love of God. Not just what humans can provide for us, because the humans that we know, they have specs, and we have two-by-fours, so that love isn't always going to be great. But the love that never ends, the love that never fails, is the God kind of love. And he always gives it to you. It is always there for you. He doesn't ever hold it back from you. That's the love that we need to allow to define our lives and to give us identity. God loves me. It it didn't work out with so-and-so, and so-and-so is not my friend anymore, and I still pray for them, but I don't see them anymore. But I don't let all of that define me. God loves me. I'm, I'm his child. And I allow that love to propel me forward and not bitterness and unforgiveness to hold me back. Last verses today. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Very famous, poetic, beautiful portion of scripture that we hear read at weddings, and it is poetic, and it is beautiful, but it's powerful when we learn to do it, and we put it into practice, and we surrender the way we do relationships to this, not anger, malice, slander, 
hatred, lying. We have enough evidence in the world that 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 doesn't work. If we surrender the way we do relationships to this, then we will experience the God kind of relationships. We will experience the God kind of parent-child relationships. We will experience the God kind of marriage relationships. If we yield ourselves to these ideas. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, Love is patient. Now before I keep reading, remember, we're not thinking about the person who has the speck in their eye. Right? We're going to read this right now for the two by four person. That's me. We're not reading this for our spouse right now. Right? We're going to be like, oh, I wish my aunt was here to hear this. She needs it. No, you are equipped with the two by four sticking out of your face. Let's read it for ourselves. Love is patient and kind. God wants us, just two words, just a second. This is how God wants us to be trained to live. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand on its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Love keeps no... I, 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 I'm throwing away the scorecard. It's too much to bear. Listen. It's too much to bear carrying someone else's scorecard. Because once again, if we're carrying someone else's scorecard, we're denying our own humanity. And all we're thinking about, look, this, look at all of the, the X's that they have against their name. And the whole while, we haven't humbled ourselves. We haven't thought about ourselves and how we're doing in relationships. We're just holding stuff against everybody else. Everybody else is an idiot except me. It's a terrible place to be in. Verse 6, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Is always hopeful. And endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. But love will last forever. It is the thing that transcends us because it is God. The scripture says that God is love. See, and ultimately when we put this love into practice in our lives, we're celebrating the love that God has given us. When we decide to stop keeping score about everybody else's issues. And when we we decide to become compassionate and loving. Then we actually put this God kind of love into practice in our lives. And then we're celebrating the love that he's given us. Not just the love that I get to live with, but it actually came from him. Let's just skip down to verse 12. It says this. Now we see things imperfectly like 
puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. Talking about when we see Jesus. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. What is it? God actually knows you completely. He knows about all of your messed up thinking. He knows about all of the stuff that you've done wrong, all of the stuff that you've said wrong. He knows you completely and he still loves you. He hasn't given up on you. You're not a hopeless cause. It's not over for you. Even while he knows you completely. Man, we celebrate the love of God. That's what we're going to do here in a second when we receive communion. We're celebrating the love of God. This love that has been poured out on us. Verse 13. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let's receive communion together this morning. Thanks for listening. If you need prayer or would like to share how this message has impacted you, please email info at thecitychurch.ca.